0: In this episode, Stephen walks us through the introduction of the mobster turned agent that would eventually help the RCMP and the FBI bring down a very large organized crime family.
1: They realized that, okay, this guy is the real deal, but they still had to get some evidence. And they called it the homework phase. They brought the agent back into Canada and said, okay, we're giving you homework. Let's see how connected you are, basically, because as an agent... They can now direct that asset to do these things, unlike an informant. And immediately, as soon as his boots hit the ground in Canada, he was linked up with the Violi brothers in Hamilton because they have a history. And this is a guy, when you think about it, he grew up in the mob. He's 100% Italian. He's been a street soldier in New York City for the bananas He did six years standing on his head, didn't rat anybody out gets deported to Italy and now he's back.
0: Welcome to Game of Crimes.
2: They're they're vicious. I mean just cold-blooded. It's holy cow, the you know, the the uh, loyalty that they give to the family, uh, it, it comes before your own family. The You know, the crime family comes first over everything.
1: It's unbelievable. But that's where they become disillusioned because it's, especially when they go to jail, oh, we'll take care of your family. We'll send you money. A lot of these guys
0: realize this is a load of shit because it doesn't happen. And we're going to save that. Let's say, because that's going to play into part of the story, right? So let's, let's save that part of it and kind of set the stage just a little bit more, uh, because let's talk about their main sources of income, you know, what they were doing. But I really want to talk about how you ended up getting involved in this, how your source, your informant became part and parcel of kind of your entree into this. So let's talk about first their sources of income for these mobs what, in that area. What was the main source of income for most of these uh, mob families? The top two. Narcotics and gambling. But the one thing, and again,
1: that flip flops because, you know, cocaine is typically imported into Canada. Any major investigative file in Canada over the last 10 to 15 years, maybe even beyond that. Uh, I've been involved uh, when I was in Intel with a couple projects from an undercover perspective as a handler. They are all linked to El Chapo Sinaloa cartel. You know, any major cocaine importation was coming up into Canada. So when you think of like importing hundreds or thousands of keys and you get nabbed or somebody gets picked off, not only the the potential that the criminal uh, retribution or punishment and sentencing, but what if that person flips and it's not insulated? It could lead to a major ripple effect if somebody's facing a long sentence. So gambling has really become, especially in the last seven, eight years in southern Ontario, gambling has become one of the like probably most dominant rackets. Because when you think of gambling, the criminal sanctions attached to it are nowhere in comparison to what the mitigating circumstances, especially at sentencing, aggregating factors of, say, even now, like drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil, that you know size of a TikTok can kill eight people you know, the risk and judges uh, don't look lightly at those, those crimes. Whereas gambling, you know, we have legalized casinos in Ontario. And so the mob is all over that. And and the bikers and the mob have worked uh, in, in tandem, in unison for the, a number of years in the gambling world. Poker houses, they still do exist. They make thousands of dollars, but with the technology, it's these online poke, poker rackets or sports betting is huge. You know, look at COVID, COVID, even, you know, no one was doing, anything, but when they had sports on, you know, organized crime was doing better than ever because the casinos were closed here and that's where hardworking people are but going. But the
0: internet was open 24
1: seven. And, you know, when you look at when they start putting their servers in Costa Rica and all around the world, um, you know, they're doing this for a reason because they want to insulate themselves, not only criminally, but on a geographic level, because, you know, a lot of times to investigate the paper trail and the laundering and the, you know, the computer trail and the digital footprints, it's not an easy task. But there, I've been a part of a couple small gambling projects where, you know, like a million dollars stuffed in cash in a shoebox was like coffee money to some of these guys for one, one day. That's just one gambling site. So you times that by... You know, hypothetically, if they had, say, 20, maybe only two are detected by law enforcement. And if a if million dollars is considered petty cash for jump change. Well, yeah chump change for just one rocket in one day. Like, I'm not really good with math, but that's a lot of damn cash that adds up pretty quick. It is, And it's
0: low risk, like you say. So I get caught, so yeah. I do five years. I can do that standing on my head. What? But you get caught killing somebody? I mean, life in prison, you know. And like I say, all the logistics that go with transporting coke, you know, and everything. And, yeah, we've actually had quite a few guests that had, uh, like, Paul and Abe went after El Chapo. Two of our guys actually the ones that brought down Jeff Moore when we talked to him about the mule uh, part of the Sinaloa cartel. You Know, um, I, I mean, just so it's amazing where, like you say, where all those tentacles go. But so let's talk, let's talk about this now. Um, because as you were sharing, and I gotta tell you too, from somebody we've all been on the receiving in uh, of good information, but you can't get good information unless you sh- also share it. I mean, you've it, this has got to be a community pot. I mean, you just can't be a taker. You got to also give information. And you were giving information that the RCMP found uh, quite valuable, actually, because one of the people, one of the operations had targeted one of the Violi Brothers crew, and you actually were able to help RCMP to the point of where I think this is kind of Unpre- not unprecedented, but at the highest levels, to where the superintendent of the RCMP reached out to your chief and said, "Hey, we'd like to bring this dude named Matelsky, this crazy guy, bald head, tattoos, you know, <laughs> um, over here to work with us."
1: Yeah, it really was. And you know, it was two years of these deconfliction meetings because we had, uh, based on informant information, we had cameras in certain areas in Hamilton recording these crews coming and going, and you know, the hugging, the kissing. So just some great intel not only from, you know, the cameras we had set up, but from the informant. And I realized in the two years that I was meeting these two members from the RCMP in,
0: in Canada. And explain deconfliction. I, I know we've said it a couple of times. So de- define deconfliction meetings and then uh, obviously continue on. Because, yeah, to, just to fuel in, I
1: w- wanted to share this information because I knew it was important and it, it's best shared when you do share it to the right people. And I didn't know at the time because these meetings were a bit of a poker match, where you know I was more than willing to to provide information. I didn't realize at the time that the two RCMP members I were meeting were the two original in Canada. We call it the major case management triangle, and you have like a case manager who oversees the whole project. You have a primary lead investigator, and then you have a file coordinator. And I realized in these de what that means is they weren't giving me as much information as I was them at first. And
0: Typical Fed, Murph. See, Typical yeah. Fed.
1: You were being a snitch for them. <laughs> and I didn't realize at the time that uh, because when I would send information, it was sending off alarm bells there. So they, they would send the two investigators over dozens of times and we would talk about the information. And slowly we built... Uh, a good rapport and relationship. And I was actually, they started to hint that they had something big going on. They didn't give me, you know, the full frank and fair as they, as they use the terminology in Canada. Um, But two years of these meetings, and I didn't learn till much later that the higher ups in the RCMP during these two years of sort of deconfliction meetings were requesting that I come on this project that I wasn't fully aware that was in the, in the early stages um, but due to, I found out later, you know, due to things like staffing shortages and whatnot. And I was a supervisor in intelligence. They didn't want to sort of cut me loose to go, to go work on it. In hindsight, it would have been great because I would have been on it that much longer. But deconfliction is just that, you know, I, I sent a shared the information, very sensitive information. And, you know, when, when the RCMP is willing to come see you whenever is convenient for you at the drop of a hat, you know, you knew I could read between the lines. You know you're onto
0: something. Yeah. I knew there was something yeah. there,
1: but it was it was this, uh, you know, it was like, uh, I don't know how to say it. It was just, it was like a, a good poker, they had the good poker face going on in the early stages.
2: Unfortunately, in law enforcement, because of those type A personalities, people get very territorial with their investigations and, and their information and their informants. And, you know, they start viewing everything. It's, it's my case. And, and it's not. I mean, that's what causes a lot of issues. It causes a lot of heartache. A lot of arguments, uh, you know losing friends it's crazy. But the sad thing yeah. is, who actually wins? When you do that, the criminals win. You know the public's not winning. We're Absolutely. all public servants. we're supposed to be serving the public. So it's, it, it's frustrating when that kind of stuff takes place.
0: Well, there used to be an old joke. they said, what's the only thing Dennis Miller said this one time, the only thing the CIA and the FBI share is the letter I in their name. And, and that was true at one point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have, I've never heard yeah, of Yeah, that. That's pretty, pretty true. Dennis, Dennis Miller actually had some really good stuff. But I mean, but that's actually, but you bring up a point too, because we used to have this system, um, it was called IndyPix, National Drug uh, Pointer Intelligence System. But you had to prevent this blue on blue stuff too. So you had to, I mean, Steve or Murph, I'm sorry, I got to keep my Murphs, my Steve separate. Murph, did you ever have a case to where you ended up finding out that you were working each other, that the target of your investigation was actually a friendly? Uh, It was just in the beginning of a case uh, where an informant... Yeah, I mean, not long-term, but I mean, you ended up realizing, hey, man, we're, we, we got
2: too long. We're blue on yeah, blue. Yeah, blue on blue. Yeah, we were down in Miami, and and uh, make a real long story short, informant says there's a group that you know wants to uh, sell us cocaine, so... We sent an informant in, but luckily Kevin and I were partners at the time. We talked to one of the senior agents that knew a whole lot more about drug cases than we did. And he said, you know what, go check into it, but this sounds like a potential blue on blue. Well, we set up surveillance. I've got the eyeball on the door at this Denny's on 36th Street down in Miami next to the Miami airport. The infamous Denny's. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've seen some memes on that from some of our friends on the on the fan page um, but, uh, you know, I park in there and everybody has tinted windows and I park next to this pickup truck and, and I'm watching the door and I'm calling out to everybody. and We're not seeing any movement. And we're into this thing like 20, 25 minutes. And this pickup truck all of a sudden starts and it startled me because I know, you know, I couldn't see in the truck. Startles me. He backs out and he pulls in on the other side. Well, now I can't see the door because he's blocked me. And I'm sitting there like you son of a bitch. And then it hits me. Uh, it's not right. Just somebody's in that truck that wants to see the door more than me. So, you know, we call everybody, we call our guys over to a neutral site. We suit up, put your vest on, put your raid jacket on, you know, and we come back. As we're pulling in, we kind of surround this truck and everybody hits their blue lights so that they know it's cops. You know, we get out and the first thing you see coming out of that truck is a badge in somebody's hand going, <laughs> oh, we're the good guys, we're the good guys. So blue on blue. And that's what happens when you don't share and you don't deconflict. Yeah. Stephen, that ever happened to you?
1: Uh, the close, uh, nothing like what happened with Murph, but we had an informant where we didn't realize until later because we, we were meeting this informant in a public place far from where they lived. And it was actually a coffee shop within this grocery store, like we, you know, sort of in the corner. And we're sitting there, the informant always liked to sit in the far corner so he could see, you know, everything in his, in his view. And I remember, I I thought at first we were getting paranoid, but I could see people like there was a guy that was like moving like the Boston lettuce. And as soon as I would turn (laughs) around, just nonchalant, he would go back looking down. Like, and I started noticing, (laughs) then I I noticed uh, a a female checking out at the one of 10 items. And and I thought, no, maybe I'm just being over paranoid. And it wasn't until one of these guys walked by, I literally could see the set of keys hanging down and that, you know, like even the detective cars, surveillance cars, you have like the car number on it. And even from far away, I recognized that little gold plate. <laughs> and, and I just said to the informant, my co-handler, I'm like, you know what? We got a bail. So I had the informant go at the back of the store. My co-handler was parked here. I left a different way. And I'm like, what the hell? I met up with the, with my partner and I said, I don't know what the heck happened. Well, it turned out a completely different agency Uh, had our informant as a target but they thought uh we were part of his crew yeah (laughs) so we we quickly had to resolve that quick because we were in surveillance pictures i'm sure and and the whatnot but it was like holy cow i wasn't being paranoid it was like you know when those spidey senses go off and you think is that i I think there's like a i think there's a surveillance team on us in here and sure there was was. yeah and that's something you have to really be
0: aware of out there because the bad guys They can be doing surveillance on you just like you're doing surveillance on them. You know, Got to watch that counter surveillance. Now, look, I don't have a story like that, but I do have a story about how I got a guy to move out of the spot that I wanted because he had his back to the wall. (laughs) I just took the table right across from him, and I sat and I stared at him. I did something unnatural. I was putting my back to everybody, and I just sat there, and I ate, and I just watched him. And I think I creeped him out enough to where he finally got up and left, and I took his spot because I needed that spot to watch what was going on. I <laughs> would creep me out. You stand there. I get That's creeped awesome. out here
2: looking at me on the especially just here. eating well, those dude. fries
0: one at a time. Going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got a perdy boy. Did. I was gonna say you cracked your pants when he
2: came over and gave you a phone number.
0: Uh, you, I, you know, don't let the good looks fool <laughs> you, Murphy. It has happened. So, but back, back to you, Stephen. So I mean, awesome. you're sharing this information, and now you're starting to. You guys are doing the dog thing, which I like to call the dog. You're sniffing each other's butt. You're trying to develop trust, right? So. How long did it take you? He's got or, to write with words. Don't you, Steve? <laughs> hey man, you got to get these visual pictures. How long did you have to sniff or did the RCMP have to sniff your butt before they decided to trust you?
1: Uh, well, I, I, That trust and report was developed, but it took two years of wow. the back and forth. They had, they had pitched to my uh, the superiors that I didn't know of until years later for me to come on board, but it kept getting gonged. And it wasn't until 2015 that, you know, something had to give way eventually because it was just, it was getting almost to the point of like ridiculousness. Like you can only go back and forth with these de It's either we're going to, you know, work together or, or hop on and put on the same Jersey, so to speak. And and let's like, like Murph said, you know, we were wasting more time back and yeah. forth meeting each other. Like I love sharing information, but it was like those two years where I I could have leapfrogged and gone on there and just been, Part of it, and work together as a, a unison, as as a as a team. I eventually did, uh, but it took it took till 2015 before that ball really sort of gained momentum and started rolling. Well,
0: let's talk about 2015 because you get officially. I mean, you gotta you gotta jump through paperwork, it's almost like agents do in Canada. I mean, you gotta go through paperwork, you gotta sign agreements, and then you get officially seconded. To the RCMP. Let's talk about the unit you got seconded into, which is basically temporary duty. You got assigned, even though you're still uh, a police officer. You got um, you you are tasked now to work with the RCMP. And what was the name of that unit? The name of the unit,
1: the acronym is uh, CFSU, and it's Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. And the RCMP uses that unit. Uh, there's a, a number of them throughout Canada, British Columbia. There are a couple areas in, in the province of Ontario. And the one I was involved in was in Milton, Ontario. Toronto is obviously their, their main offices of CFSU. And they use that uh, typically on large scale projects where they bring in, obviously the RCMP is running the show, but they bring in the CFSU is all the city and municipal officers, typically with a drug intel or a combination of both background that they second to work on these projects sort of as added, added resources. And that's where that memo of understanding comes into play, where the two agencies, uh, wherever the person is getting seconded from, enters into a contract and agreement with our federal uh, RCMP. So
0: we call that task force officers here in the U.S. TFOs, yeah. The best part, though, about getting seconded was you got 45 bucks a day for meals, didn't you? It was around
1: 45 bucks and I'm like, I couldn't even spend this if I had dinner, you know, somewhere fancy. What the heck?
0: Yeah, but the problem was they'd give you forty five I mean, think about that. Over ten days that's four hundred and fifty bucks. You know, you're talking about thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a month for meals. But the cheap bastards wouldn't buy you a chair. Wouldn't buy me a chair. I think they let a pit
1: bull loose. This chair I had, both arms were, it was like it was, uh, you know, sitting at a a, a pit bull emporium and they all had a go at this thing. And my back was killing anytime I had to do paperwork. I said, I'm willing to forego, you know, three or four of these lunches to put it towards a chair because I bring my lunch every day. I I felt guilty taking this money. I'm like, can you buy, can I get a new chair? And I I couldn't get a new chair. (laughs) It's and, the and Murph, you were the master
0: things. at stretching per DM too. You guys had your little racket about hotel rooms oh, and yeah. single rooms and double rooms. Yeah, because uh, you know back in the seven. Well, let's see, back in the eighties, I guess this was. Uh, if you, yeah, because you didn't get on DEA till the eighties. Yeah, yeah. So I
2: just thought I'd remind you. I'm getting older. Of here. your own careers. I got to remember where I am here. I'm just trying to remember the stairs, stairs are to get back upstairs. I got to go to the bathroom here in a minute. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, going off track here a little bit No inner monologue, no filter,
0: oh my god Hey, this, uh, you, hey everything you hear, here's the truth you gotta go pee, you gotta Murph, go If pee. you tell me you no longer have to go to the bathroom, I don't want you to stand up Just stay seated uh, Well, it, well, it depend, depends, right? Uh, it depends, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right like uh,
2: So anyway, back to our story here uh, if you went, if you traveled international, you didn't have to provide receipts. Whereas if, you know, in the government, if you traveled domestically, you did for your, your hotel. And so when you were domestic, everybody gets their own hotel room and you had to, you had to have receipts for everything. But when you over, went overseas, you just got a flat rate of money. And, and so what would happen is we were all a bunch of cheap bastards. So we'd get three or four guys in the same hotel room, you know, and then you had drinking money and you had extra money when you got home and, and, uh, somebody, Caught on to it, I guess. somebody's running their mouth, I'm sure, is what happened. And the government said, oh, they can't do that. You know, you can't have you making money on these trips, so you're going to have to start producing receipts, which ended up everybody got into their own hotel room again. But just think of the amount of paperwork that generated. If you're TDYs, if you're going international, you might be TDY for a month, two months, six months. You don't know. And you got to provide those damn receipts. The the, oh, the my paper God. man was just ridiculous.
0: I remember as a detective, the, they would send us on training, and it's like, they just wouldn't give you a flat per diem. Oh, it's only like fifteen dollars for dinner, ten dollars for lunch, and seven dollars for breakfast. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't spend any more than that. And I'm you you're wasting that much money. Just tracking the paperwork. Just give me 50 bucks. Give me 40. Hell, if you would have given me 30 bucks a day, Stephen, I would have bought you a chair. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And then, you know, and then if it's your first day and your last day of of the TDY, you only get three quarters per diem that way because they figure you're not in your post. You know, you're not at the TDY location where you could have breakfast and you're probably not there for dinner on that last day. It's it's only the government
0: can come up with these kind of rules. It's unbelievable. Spends more money to track the money. So waste, fraud, and abuse is a staple of federal government in the United States there's always one
1: person though that wrecks that wrecks any kind yep. of good thing I think we can agree absolutely always absolutely.
0: one speaking of a good thing so you had a good th- notice these transitions I just work them seamlessly in it's like I am a well-trained podcast hey. host so hey. let's say Stephen hey don't that, that's that's stereotypical we will not stereotype our Canadian guests hey. right <laughs> <Yeah>. okay <clears throat> almost said it so Stephen but now you but but so you get just kind of, but the other thing too, it's kind of like, you know, in other parlance, it's like being read onto the project, you know, but you are now being brought in and briefed on this. So what was it like to really find out what the RCMP was working on once they brought you in and opened the kimono and they said, Hey, Steven, look here. What was it?
1: Yeah, it was nothing to the level I expected because they were, when I got brought onto the project, their police agent uh, had uh, just to take a step back of where it developed those two years of deconfliction meetings. What happened was this: uh, who the guy that became the police agent was a legit bonafide mobster from New York City, and was connected
0: to the Bonanno crime family. And-, and this is the tie-in. Sorry, this is the tie-in where I was saying earlier, just told it because now you're talking about somebody we talk about. Uh, you know, doing time on his head, you know, do they really take care of you while you are in prison? This guy was the actual epitome of what went wrong with the OC folks uh, and why he became an agent.
1: 100%. Because he did six years, I can't even remember what offense, but he did six years in an American prison cell. And he never ratted anybody out. And he shut his mouth and he went to jail. And when he was released, he got deported from the United States, he got deported to Italy. And, you know, this, he became really disillusioned here. He was in jail and all these mobsters made promises. We'll take care of you. We'll take care of your family when you're away. Nobody did shit and he gets deported and here he is in Italy. He has no way of getting back into the United States. And he really, you know, had doubts about what's this life in organized crime. There's no loyalty. Nobody gives a, nobody gave a shit about him when he was in jail and he did six years without sinking the ship and easily could have you know ratted out other guys. So you know, in Canada at the time, when here he is it, sitting somewhere in Italy, this mobster who's been exiled from the States, and he sees this huge RCMP press conference and they had just wrapped up another mafia driven police agent project in Ontario uh, outside of the Toronto in the Toronto area. And here's this guy now seeing this and he's seeing these, uh, you know, the high echelon of the RCMP talking at a press conference. And I can't remember if the amount of money was disclosed. It may have been the fact that this police agent who was a real mobster too, was paid seven figures in the millions uh, to to, to wear a wire for two years. That's what being a police agent is. And he literally decides... That's my ticket back in. That's my ticket, not only back into America or Canada, but that's my meal ticket. Cause screw all these guys. Nobody had my back when I was in jail. Nobody took care of my wife or my kid. So you know what? I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. This whole Omerda thing is just a load of shit. That, that was his mentality. So that was the, the lead up. He literally cold calls the RCMP from Italy, one of the higher up uh, members in the RCMP And again, you can imagine, you know, your, your desk phone rings and it's the guy's got the gravelly Brooklyn accent and he's saying who he says he is. But as trained investigators, like, you know, we all are anybody that does this line of work. It's like, yeah, who's pranking me? Are you
0: you pulling my leg? Who the hell is this?
1: Is this the jerky boys? That was probably an outdated reference, but like, am I getting punked here? Like, what is, who is this guy? Um, But it was this progression The the calls kept continuing and. Long story short, this is before I. This is the the basis of how it all started. Was this this higher up in the RCMP who I know very well uh, arranged to have a, a couple members come on as basically agent potential agent handlers, and they decide to meet this guy because the information he was able to provide over the phone. It's not something somebody can sit down at the computer and Google like find on open source. He was over a number of conversations giving them enough inside information that only somebody in that life would be privy to. And that's when his credibility factor started going up. Not enough to, you know, yeah, we're going to give you X amount of millions of dollars, but it was a really good start. So the two handlers, they decide to meet this potential agent in a neutral European country. And I'm not making this shit up. They walk into a location. I believe it was a hotel. Obviously, nobody knows who anybody is. They're going to meet this guy there for the first face to face. And you know, in these hotel lounges, they have, uh, there's like a a band playing off to the side. The second the two RCMP guys go up to meet this guy, the band happens to start playing the Godfather (laughs) theme. (laughs) And I'm not making this shit up. Uh, Like, what are the, like, and nobody knows anybody. They're just, they're just a <laughs> band in a hotel lounge. And it's like, I wish I was there, but I was like, it really happened. And I'm like, this is the stuff you can't make up. So here's
0: a quick piece of trivia. Do you know there are words to the Godfather thing? There were words. Yeah, speak softly, love, so no one hears us but the sky. The vows of love we make will live until we die. My life is yours, and all because you came into this world with love. So softly, love. Wow, that's another thing. I gotta write that down. Oh
1: no, no, don't, don't. I told you, don't encourage there are him, Steve. To this. Don't encourage oh.
0: him. Sorry, Murph. Oh, I just <laughs> don't apologize. You did it again. No, <laughs> thank you very much. Can we? we course, edit, so edit, 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 edit. We are so good at this psychological uh, operation stuff. Uh, oh, edit that. They <laughs> gotta edit that out. Oh. No, 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 no. All right. So they start playing the Godfather. Da, 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 da. All right. And somebody's got either somebody's got a wicked sense uh, of no. humor or that is just uh,
1: it was <laughs> it was it was pure irony and fluke. Like obviously nobody knows anything that's happened. There's a you know a, a covert meeting and uh this one on alleged back, covert meeting alleged covert, yeah. <laughs> but they got to the point they realized, okay, if There there was a lot of covert stuff behind the scenes to get this guy. And again, with the agent process, a lot of hoops to jump through to get this guy eventually signed up. But one of the first things they did, they called it the homework phase. There were obviously a lot of things happening behind the scenes with the government to get this Italian mobster back into Canada. Um, And the RCMP became the lead on what would be O'Tremens, but the FBI were involved as well because of, you know, the connectivity to New
0: York oh, the connections. City. Now, let me ask you something. He, If he had tried to apply for a visa to come into Italy, or from Italy into Canada, they would have checked his background. He would have been declared an undesirable, right? He would not have been able to get into Canada because, I, I mean, I you watch, you watch the shows, but I also know from cops, you have a DUI conviction or you have some kind of domestic violence thing. They'll stop you at the border and say, sorry, folks, Canada's closed for you, you know, back the way you came from.
1: Uh yeah, major red flags and alarm bells would have gone off. I think in in America I'm trying to think it was the NCIC was the query NCIC.
0: Well, they NC- they would have had their watch list, you know, and things like that. You know, it, yeah, all of those different systems they would have run your name through it and been able to find out, ah, flag, you know, he's been flagged as a undesirable.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think when they when the RCMP and even the FBI realized, and again the RCMP were actually were actually the lead on this, um They realized that, okay, this guy is the real deal, but they still had to get some evidence. And they called it the homework phase. They brought the agent back into Canada and said, okay, we're giving you homework. Let's see how connected you are basically. Because as an agent, they can now direct that asset to do these things, unlike an informant. And immediately, as soon as his boots hit the ground in Canada, he was linked up with the Violi brothers in Hamilton, because they have a history. And this is a guy, when you think about it, he grew up in the mob. He's 100% Italian. He's been a street soldier in New York City for the bananas He did six years standing on his head, didn't rat anybody out, gets deported to Italy, and now he's back.
0: So everybody— So how does he—what's the cover story? How does he explain? You know, because this reminds me, Steve, you know, the episode, or Murph, you know, with Sherry Oz, where we talked about her getting her informant out. And like you're in prison, you know. And this guy, same thing happened with him too, Stephen. This very similar story. This, I mean, this guy, in, you know, one of the Mexican gangs, I think it was, just top guy. Nobody, nobody visited him in prison. Nobody even sent him a card saying, "Hey, I'm thinking about you." And that you said, just you know, it's good. Like screw you guys. Same thing, but you know, to her, it's kind of like, what's your cover story for getting out? How does somebody who's been convicted or in jail get out? So do you know what this guy's cover story was? How did he explain the fact is that he got deported, but now he's what magically back in Canada?
1: I was never privy to those details. I think they occurred at such a high level that that was part of the covert nature again in the RCMP. A lot of times when you're part of that project, you're obviously getting a lot of the information but those details were before i came on and they weren't like made readily available to
0: to the investigative team did CSIS have any part of the canadian service canadian secret intelligence services right CSIS. did they have any role in this or any part of this with that you guys were working on this since it obviously had some international connections
1: they had no role on it while i was a part of that project and any any of the information i the two years before I came on. No, they weren't, they weren't mentioned at all. The uh, CBSA, the uh, Canada border service agency was a part of it because of the international drug trafficking uh, aspect. They, they, they definitely were a part of that. Um, But the one thing, regardless of what his cover story was, it didn't raise any suspicions in Canada. And the RCMP realized really quickly, not only is this agent uh, the best term is mobster turned agent. This mobster turned agent was not only really connected to these guys in Hamilton. He had connections, obviously in New York with the bananas. He had connections in Buffalo and he had connections in the major mafia family in, in Montreal, Quebec. Those are the main four in that sort of Northern United States, Southern Canada. And it was like, that's when they realized, okay, his homework paid off instantaneously a lot quicker than the RCP, even imagine. So they realized, okay, the information is this guy's the real deal. And he is confirmed reliable. He is who he says he is.
2: But now when he's coming back over from Italy and, and the, the mob members know, you know what his background is and he's been uh, deported back to
1: Italy and all of a sudden he shows up, how does he cover himself on that? Okay. I'm not sure what his cover story was, but he, there was something that was established behind the scenes and it was between the RCMP and the FBI because during the course of this project, which was centered in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, the, you know, he, the, the mobster turned agent had to go back to New York City quite a bit. And that's where there was this partnership with the FBI
0: well that makes sense too cuz if you're going to cross borders i mean not only are you coming into canada you got to come into the united states and so unless unless he's got a special record in the system he's going to be flagged by customs and border patrol he's going to be flagged by your canadian border services agency i mean this guy's going to have more red flags than a uh, you know the bull run in uh, what is it pompeo <laughs> spain you know <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. so I, I there's no doubt in my mind that they realized okay what is the the risk and the reward in making this guy, this mobster, a police agent who has tentacles and connections to, and at that time in New York, and especially in Canada and Southern Ontario, you know, it very ripe with violence. There was a lot happening because of that power shift in Montreal, Quebec, that was having a major effect in uh, New York. And then it was having an effect in Hamilton and Buffalo. So here you got this, like this gold star informant who's elevated to a police agent who can go inside because to come back to like UC work, unless you have, and this is the benefit. Once he did become an agent was then he could vouch for undercovers in other areas of Canada, but there is no way. And again, nothing's impossible, but it would be extremely difficult. You could get the best, highest trained undercover operative. Who's hundred percent Italian and come up with the best backstory, cover story. These organizations, these criminal organizations, do more thorough and and uh, due diligence background checks than government agencies do. And plus, the Italian community, they will be able
0: to trace this undercover's lineage to see who he's related to. You got? I know your mama. I know your papa. Yeah. I know I went to school with Giuseppe. You know and stuff. But actually, there's one interesting thing I want to ask you about kind of put a a pin in the map on that one there. But it's also the issue of you you had to go through so many hoops. I mean, there's got to be a lot of security around this, including going into the offices, handling information. Give everybody just a flavor about what it was like to be able to even walk into the building or log in or have access to this information. What kind of security controls were in place, you know, without disclosing national security information, which Well, you know, we don't want, we don't want you being doing time in a Canadian prison. I mean, the beer is probably terrible, but you know, (laughs) what can you tell us about just some of the security precautions and protocols that were in place? Yeah. Like once the memo of understanding was
1: signed, um, you know, which dealt with a lot, a lot of information, it was a contract and, you know, you're given uh, you're not an RCMP employee per se, but you are working with and for them. And you're given the ID, you're given uh, all these different security cards, holy, the passwords. I was like, you know, I have a pretty decent memory, but just trying to remember all the the different codes and passwords to everything. Uh, Because the CFSU building was, uh, we had our sort of our own uh, project room that was, you know, key code entry. Uh, unauthorized acts or uh, authorized access.
0: Did you have an offsite location that was just a totally anonymous building? Or were you in, a, in an official quote government building? We were in an, it, I mean, a, a, it was an RCMP building. Um,
1: you know, they had safe houses and whatnot for, for the agent, but the, the two major CFSU offices were in Toronto and the other one was in Milton where I was uh, working on this project. So uh, it was really the epicenter, of where everything happened. And then, you know, there were so many people involved in the project from surveillance teams, cover teams, you know, investigators and whatnot that um, we had, like any agency, you would have your, your weekly sort of debrief investigative meetings where, you know, the operational on of the RCMP would come and literally everybody that was on that project was in, in a, a massive meeting room. And it was, you know, to go over what's happening, what happened and investigative avenues to be explored.
2: Now, when you're when you're seconded to the RCMP, do you now have federal authority,
1: not just jurisdiction, you know, not just regional authority where your home agency is? See, I would only I would still be considered a municipal p- a police officer because it's a secondment. So, you know, to have authority outside of the province of Ontario, I believe the process is you would have to go see like a justice of the peace or judge. In another province if you had um so it didn't give me that federal authority to act as a peace officer outside the province of ontario but with that said you know my involvement in the project typically you know it wouldn't see me having to travel uh outside of ontario um and that's where the rcmp comes in handy because these projects are obviously run by them typically the cfsu members the bulk of them are Seconded members from city services, municipal services. Uh, but that's where the resources, like I was saying to you guys before, like you can't investigate these huge, huge crim orgs, even with a provincial team like OPP, let alone like putting two or three municipal services together because they take a year. This project was four years. It cost millions of dollars to run. You know, the police agent was paid millions of dollars. Nobody on a provincial or municipal has even remotely a budget that could, that could do that. So
0: except for chairs, they had no budget for damn chairs.
1: (laughs) True. (laughs) Damn chair.
0: Chair budget. There you go. <laughs> Where's my chair budget? <laughs>
2: could have probably solve this case three years earlier if you'd had that chair.
0: Yeah, if we had just had a decent chair, and I could have stayed awake. But but so but but you're going into the building. So obviously you've got your access cards, you've got passwords, you've got layers of authentication. How big is the team that is working on this project, uh, uh, Tremens? The team is about 75 people on a on
1: a good on a good day, 60 to 75. And you know, again, there's a lot of. Uh, you know, they would like, we had, you know, a a pro surveillance team that was dedicated to the project, but you know, people would be transferred. There's a lot of political stuff with staffing issues. You know, like I, realistically, I had an opportunity. I found out later to come on the project two years earlier. So I would have had that much more exposures, but at any given time,
0: I say the average was about 60 investigators. Pretty good size. I mean, so yeah, Right. So I mean, so now you've got this guy, he's doing his homework, he's making the connections. How fast do things accelerate now, now that he's back, you know, as so like you say, back in the game, feet on the street? How fast? What kind of cases now to start getting made with this guy, this agent?
1: Yeah, primarily drug cases, because here you have an established guy from New York who knows the the Violi brothers very well, historically as well. And this is where once the police aid mobster turned agent is become really close with these guys, that is when we, the RCMP started u- utilizing after a certain amount of time to start vouching for undercovers because drug importation typically in Canada comes in one of two ways. It can come up through Montreal at the port that the mafia has owned historically over the years, or it comes up from Mexico through California, all the way up the West Coast into British Columbia, Canada. So we had the the agent was going out there a lot with uh, some criminal associates and, and one of the brothers because he was vouching for drug guys he knew that could bring in, whether it was fentanyl from China or cocaine from, you know, whether it was Columbia or Mexico. And that really gave the RCMP an opportunity. That's when you can then have your mobster-turned-agent Vouch for other guys that appear to be mobsters, but they are actually undercover operatives. So that that was the key with that with the early stages of that project. It was primarily drugs, but the intelligence that was was garnered through that was just amazing because you realized with his connectivity, he knew what was happening not only in Canada, but you know in New York and in Buffalo. Where uh, all so, the
0: tentacles went, and he's wired up this whole time, right? He
1: is wired for sound. Like, like, and that's the ironic part. Is here you have all these old school mobsters. They're doing these walk and talks with with the agent who they think is one they of them. They think they're safe
0: from government surveillance. Mm-hmm. Yes, they
1: think they're safe. They're they're going into in Canada. We have like I don't know if you have Business Depot or Staples. Yeah. yeah, they're they're doing these walk and talks up and down, you know, aisle four where you'd find the blank stationary paper, thinking they're you know uh, not, the government isn't listening or nothing's wiretapped. But little did they know, their their mobster buddy from New York is is wired for sound to the to the gills. The so. wires walking right next to you. Absolutely, it should be. So it was great when I came, when I actually came on. Uh, it was just on the heels. Of the mobster turned agent, he officially got inducted as a made member, a capo regime is is the official term, in the in the banana crime family. But the induction ceremony actually happened on Canadian soil in a Hamilton hotel room, where where the epicenter of the project was taking place. So when when you uh, Morgan or Murfat when you asked me, you know, is it what you thought it was going to be, like? One of the first things that landed on my lap was that information and me listening and and watching the ceremony.
0: I'm like, holy shit, this is pretty significant. And I knew like, wow. Let's stop there for just a second because I want to dive into that a little bit more. First of all, the picture you sent us. Shows a fucking unmade yeah. bed. They're doing this in a hotel room, and the bed's not even made. I mean, what kind of serious ceremony can you have with it looks like somebody's just been laying in the bed? It's not five minutes before. It's that? It's not even
2: uh, you know, Suite and Embassy Suites or anything like that. It's just a crappy little,
0: little hotel room. Why do you think they'd do something like this in the Ritz? No, Motel Six. We'll leave the light yeah. on. You all come in here and just get get made a get made a maid guy. You know, we can make you a made guy. We just don't have a maid to make up the yeah. bed.
2: Yeah, that was pretty. That was that's not all what
0: I expected to see. <laughs> Not what I expected. Hey, but but walk us, tell us what's it like. I mean, I know you weren't there, but you you're listening to the tapes now. They also had video. This whole thing was videoed too, right? It was. And the the mobster. What's tur- it like? I'm sorry. What's it like being a a cop watching yeah. the ceremony go down like That's that? That's a big deal. You know,
1: there's this. You know, as investigators, as all cops, we you know really enjoy watching those shows. And it's this art imitating life and life imitating art and. To see it and to to experience it secondhand, watching it, listening to it, it was surreal, man. It's like, no, this isn't a TV show. And I know, you know, typically in in that life of traditional organized crime and the mafia, you know, you have the table of of cold cuts and the the prospective member. There's the saints put in their hand and their trigger finger is poked with blood. And they smear the blood on the card, and the, the card's lit on fire in their hands, and they have to repeat something to the effect of, if you betray this family, you will burn, like the saints burning in your... None of that stuff happened, unfortunately. That would have been a lot uh, cooler <laughs> for dramatic effect.
0: Certainly, so, you were kind of disappointed. It's more like, hey, raise your right hand and repeat after <laughs> me. Hi, Vinny Bag of Donuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and afterwards, afterwards, but, it's like, let's go get a Molson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Labatt's. There you go. Not, we've already determined, not a Foster's. Not Foster's. So tell us, so so they go in there. What's the setup like? How many people are in the room? There was,
1: well, the the one thing was the police agent, my turned agent had uh, ample notice. People from New York had reached out to him and said, we're coming up to see you. And basically something might happen. You you know, they they never divulge. It's going to be a secret ceremony, but he, had the wherewithal because he's a street guy gri- street guy that grew up in the mob in Brooklyn. And he 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 was a street smart guy, very street savvy. And he, you know, reported to the RCP, these two guys from the Bananos, uh, one actually was with the Gambinos, uh, Damiano Zumo was the main guy. He was an acting captain in the bananos. So it gave the project team having that heads up. Uh, cause it was off and on a number of times. You know, like drug drug dealers are never on time. Mobsters are the same. Like it was on, it was off. It was on, it was off. And then finally, when it was like, Holy shit, this is happening, the 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 Intel techs already had the room already gizzed, wired for sound, wired for audio. So, you know, when these two guys came in their uh, you know, mafia dinner outwear, uh, in the form of, you know, velvet tracksuit and a pair of running shoes. <laughs> You know, void, void of all the ceremonial, ritualistic, symbolic stuff. Wait a minute.
0: They were in tracksuits? Tracksuits. That's just... Uh, what happened to the suit and tie and, you know, and the carnation and the... That was Godfather tie Mumbling. Times. At it least was... give me a Don Corleone mumble. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let's say it was. It was very uh, semi-casual, as, as you could tell by the bed as well. <laughs> business
0: casual. I guess business casual for the mob. Yeah, yeah, we show
1: up in our velvet running suits. You know, yeah, if you chip in, you, know, you chip in two dollars for the day, and you get to wear whatever you want. It might have been one of those days <laughs> in the mob. <laughs> Blue Jean Friday. Yeah, you know. yeah. yeah we have yep. <laughs> no only only velvet track suits. No denim. No denim. Oh. No
0: denim. So, so you're watching this go down. And so how long is it kind of to walk us through the ceremony? What's it like? How do they start off? Is it a formal thing? I mean, even though they're informal, is it a formal thing or is it more just like a gab fest? It, it was pretty quick. And
1: to give you some context, these two guys, uh, Paul Semplis was the other guy. They drove from New York city to Hamilton, uh, which is about a nine hour drive on a no traffic day. They came into the hotel room, cameras were rolling, audio was rolling, um, and one of the first things that happened was the TV was put on nice and loud. They stand right by the TV, the two of them. And basically, uh, Damiano Zumo is running the show and he says, it's been approved from this guy. It's been approved from this guy. A lot of vague mob talk, which is typically their, their style. And he said, you know, it's been approved. And officially from this day forward, you are now a member of the Banano crime family and you only report to the Banana crime family. This is going to be your skipper and you are not to deal with anybody else except the Banano family. And, you well, know, wait a minute.
0: You said they also had the Gambino's there, right? There was a guy from the Gambino
1: family, which, you know, traditional organized crime has become, it's more disorganized now than it is organized. <laughs> you never would have seen these things in the seventies or eighties where this sort of thing happened. But, You know, when this went down, not only was the project team elated, I mean, it was a massive event to get it on audio and and video, but the FBI in New York, uh, including the the district attorney and even authorities in Italy felt this was really significant. So I, I was really humbled, even though it was a watered down sort of version. This is These guys are still all killers. They're making millions of dollars. It's still the mafia. And for them to drive nine hours to hug and kiss this guy... Hug him, and shake his hand, uh, void of all the symbolism. Get in the car and turn around. Ten minutes later, and drive nine hours back nonstop. It was it was a highly significant thing. And you talk about this
0: this mobster turned agent already had street cred in the mob. Now he's a made guy, and well, now he's basically in a sense untouchable. He can go vouch for anybody he wants to, and and nobody is going to disrespect this guy by questioning him. he and with the Violi brothers his stature grew
1: exponentially because just to break down the Violis were uh the brothers were about 48 and uh Dom was the older brother he was about four years older Dom was the dapper guy he's the guy in the suit he's more the business savvy guy Joey is the guy wearing you know the track suit he's he's more the street level guy don't get me wrong they're both they're both in it together but they really sort of played off each other uh, to cover off both of those areas, the street and the business side. Now, when this agent got made as an official member of the Bonanno family in New York, operating in Hamilton, Canada, um, he was really close with Dom. But Dom began to open up to him that much more because now he is a, he's a couple He's a made guy. And that really...
0: Really led to a lot of really incredible intelligence and information, Stephen, but there is an interesting something though we have to be cognizant of, right, but he's doing this, but he's expected to go commit crimes. so how do you have somebody that's expected to commit crimes be a police agent at the same time
1: yeah it's a it's a really difficult thing. I had to go through this training when I did undercover work it's 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 called bill c twenty four and it's legal justification. Um, and that's a really difficult line to walk, but because an agent is controlled and directed, everything the police agent did was under the direction of the RCMP. And just to give you a quick example, if if and the agent did there, there was over three hundred and twenty. Uh, we call them undercover plays, even though he wasn't an undercover police officer, a police agent. Even he's even if he's a mobster, we still consider them undercover operations. And let's take, for example, he has to go buy a kilo of Coke from a mobster in Toronto. That police agent, because on an evidentiary level, everything has to be above board and video recorded and every T and I has to be dotted and crossed. And they would meet in a, in a safe house or a hotel room where that agent would be searched on video. They would go over the whole preamble Uh, The money would be counted. Serial numbers would be accounted for. You name it. They would be wired up on video. They would be instructed. Because it's really like each one of these undercover plays with the mobster turned agent is like a a sequence of movie scenes almost. Because the operational plan is scripted. And this is, okay, Operation 005 is the fifth operation. Our police, our mobster turned agent is now going to be directed to go meet mobster so-and-so in toronto everything's documented. so he goes the second he leaves that hotel room he's being recorded from a surveillance team right up to the point where they meets the mobster these are things in that legislation in canada you have to convince a judge that it's something uh doing these things these illegal activities won't bring the administration of justice or an objective member of the public into shock or disrepute. So it's this, uh, you know, and and Bill C-24 applied to different undercover operations that we do as police officers. You know, if if you're posing as a biker or, you know, a street guy and the police have staged a car somewhere and to establish your credibility as, say, a tough guy in, in that undercover operation, you would have to convince a judge that okay we own this car we bought it from the compound we're going to have our undercover operator in front of the target take out a baseball bat and smash the window out it's it's a viol- it's it's a mischief it's mischief to property but that legislation you have to the threshold's huge so you have to convince a judge every time that okay this is the bigger picture and this is the you had reason- to get
0: prior approval to do these things
1: when you're doing these types of operations, it, bill bill C twenty four is that the, it's the legal justification, you know, to and that's part and parcel of, of that whole agent process.
0: I could get that if you're doing crimes against property or like buying drug crimes, but look, the kind of the ultimate is crimes against people, right? What if part of the thing was they expected you to take that baseball bat and bash a guy's knees because he hasn't paid the VIG, you know, and he's way behind, right? There's gotta be some I mean, it's like it. That's a delicate situation because you, if you don't do what's expected of you, then it's kind of why are you not doing this? And if you do do what's expected of you, it's like you've really crossed the threshold here. I can't imagine a judge under not C, you know, what is it called? C, uh, Bill, Bill, Bill C, C. What?
1: Bill C, yeah, legal justification.
0: Yeah, I, I can't see a judge allowing you to say, oh, yeah, it's got, hey, Murph. Murph is behind on the VIG, man. Go out and you can take out his left knee, not his right knee, but his left knee. <laughs> Below the knee.
2: But I was going to say the other thing, you know, when, when somebody at that level vouches for somebody, they're on the, I mean, they're on the hook for that person. So if he's vouching for an undercover police officer and that cop doesn't do what the other mobsters are expecting him to do, they're going to come back on on your yeah. guy.
1: You know, it's, it's a delicate, uh, and, you know, I wasn't, you know, e- extremely privy to you know, the front level of, of with the, with the mobster turn agent, but it's like, it's a high wire act with, with no net underneath the one luxury we had with this police agent, the mobster was we could always ship him off somewhere. He could always be developing something. And it almost reminds me of like some of the tactics, you know, Joe Pistone used when he was undercover uh, as Donnie Brasco, you know, it's this, uh, turnstile thing to try to, you're not deflecting, but you kind of are. So we, we would have our police agent go back to New York on business. We could have him go up to Montreal. We could have him go all the way out to the West coast in British Columbia to meet, uh, you know, guys that were drug traffickers, but were really undercovers. So there was always, he was, he had enough clout and because now he's a made guy. He's more in the position now to say, you're doing this for me. So when you get elevated to a capo, a made guy in the mafia, you're not taking orders. You're the guy that's not, you're the guy. So it gave, it gave the sort of direction and the way the mobster turn agent was handled from the RCP handling perspective was that, no, it's like an undercover. If somebody calls you out and says, what are you cop? You got to be aggressive and back in your face. Like, what the fuck are you asking me? Why, what, are you a cop? So they were able to do that with, with the agent. If anything came up, he could pull the, hey, man, I'm a made man. You're talking to a made guy here. Don't mess with me. So it gave him not only elevated status in the mob, but it was that level of comfort, at least somewhat a lot more that now, okay, he's not going to be expected to go out. And bust some guy's kneecaps because he has a gambling debt that's owed to the family, the crime family. But isn't
0: doesn't he have some kind of vicarious responsibility that if somebody in his organization goes out and does it because he says, "Hey, we need to collect this debt," doesn't he? Isn't he in a sense almost like a co-conspirator? You know, in a conspiracy to whack you know the knees or something. I mean, I'm not trying to get legal on you here. I'm just trying to say this is so interesting because he can't. He really can't violate the law unless he's got like you say prior approval you know but there's but there's limits too it's like you can't allow your informant or your agent to go out and kill somebody just to prove that he's a made guy
1: no absolutely not and this is the one interesting thing because we talk about the violi brothers the crime family is called violi lapino and the two uncles were joey and dom's uncles they are made guys in the buffalo mob and they could the investigators. We could never get them on the radar, because they were your epitome of old school mafia. These guys didn't grow up anywhere near the cell phone technology, social media, or the internet, and it didn't matter what direction the project went. It, it just a really quick, interesting story. Was uh, even when the the mobster turned agent, when there were those rare off days where he wasn't under surveillance because. Uh, We used to do that with our really good informants. We would still put, we would go with the Intel techs in the middle of the night. The Intel techs would go up underneath the informant's car and put a a very concealed, they would practice ahead of time. They would put a concealed GPS tracker because we wanted to make sure our informant, who might be an agent down the line,
0: we want to see where he's going when he's not you talking to us you want to make to sure us. he's not a quote double agent right playing you guys playing both sides against You're the doing middle your 100% so on one of these off
1: days the one of the uncles of the Violis, nat uh the police the mobster turn agent is actually getting his haircut at a barber shop and we got all that. the team got this information from the police agent cuz he wasn't wired up it was a rare one of those down days which was rarely rare in the four years and because Nat had been caught on wires saying to one of his nephews, do you ever notice the temperature goes up a little bit whenever so-and-so's around? And it was so poignant and interesting because here's this old school mobster who was trusting his gut and his antenna. And he was spot on. He made a couple comments during the project and that's why he was never ensnarled. But on this off day, he goes to the barbershop. The mobster agent is sitting in the chair and the uncle knocks, basically knocks on the window, something to that effect, and motions him outside when he's done. And they do, and they, of course, it's the day he's not wired up. And they do one of these walk and talks. And it wasn't a conversation, hey, how you doing? What's new? He was interrogated. He was questioning him. Because he's his gut was telling him, why the frick is this New York mobster hanging out with these with us in Hamilton, even though we know this guy? This just doesn't doesn't, add and up. you know what his intuition was spot on man, because that was
0: that was about midway through the project, but so, so- talk about the you know he said doesn't it seem warmer? is he talking about the the heat from the transmitter or what the heat from our our agent whenever he's around,
1: he felt the the, the heat he, he could sense there was i don't know if he. Maybe spotted a car,
0: make a funny turn. I, that I don't know. Oh, that's why I, I didn't know. Because sometimes, you know, I mean, they've gotten better with electronics. Some of the old stuff used to fry your nuts. Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you left the recorder. To oh yeah, <laughs> like that Niagara recorder or something else. You know, I yeah. like, God, this is getting hot. I have itch. You have jock itch. What's the problem with you? You know, there's a powder for that. Yeah. Uh, but he just—you meant what he meant was that he—he kind of had this spidey sense as well. It's kind of like I detect some. I mean, something I feel like there's an increased surveillance presence or something else. And he made that comment
1: in context of when our mobster agent was was around. around. Do you ever notice the heat being like, you know, the cops, law enforcement? And that was, there was a couple holy shit moments, you know, because it's like things like that. I mean, really could have escalated and sort of blown things because that's to lead into your point, Morgan, is that, you know, the agent's feet could have been put to the fire. Yeah, if you say, we need you to do this work because, um, you know, once the agent got made, uh, uh, another major thing that happened on this project was Dom Violi, it's the first time this has ever happened in mafia history, as far as I can tell and research and find out, was Dom Violi was promoted to underboss of the Buffalo Mafia because he's, he's on uh, wiretap talking to the agent's wire, telling him how Joe Tadaro, now the, the Buffalo crime family is the Tadaro crime family, and how uh, Dom Violi had been invited down to Florida, had been talking to the boss in Buffalo, and Dom Violi beat out 30 American mobster runner-ups for the role position of underboss in the buffalo mob and this occurred about two months before the project was taken down and had the project this is where the 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 mobster turn agent would have been put to task because when you listen to the wiretaps the two brothers in front of the mobster turn agent who's now a made man once Dom Violi is now an underboss, and they're like, Dom, you made history. Like, no Canadian mobster has been promoted to underboss. That's like second in command of a mafia family in the US. When you listen to the transcripts, they seem harmless. You hear one of the brothers saying, Yeah, pretty soon we're gonna have to go down and do some work in the United States. But the the mobster turn agent in the debriefs would say, Remember that part when they said we're going to go have to down to the US to do some work. They were going like this. They were making the shape of a gun with their hand because now you have this Canadian mobster. He's probably pissed off all these American mobsters who, you know, they're like that's probably where the difference would come in handy like who's this schmuck in Canada running a buffalo crime family when we're Lacosa Oster from the US? It should have been an American who got this job. How's he going to How's he going to supervise and run a crime family from Canada? So they started talking quickly to get uh, some credibility in the United States. Now that he had this high position, they were going to have to start doing some contract work. And that's hence the the gun. So had that project gone, that's where the the mobster turned agent probably would have, you know, the shit would have hit the fan in terms of why aren't you doing this? Why, you know, made guy or not. We got to go down and press these uh, mobsters in New York and Buffalo. Now that we're really a huge part of this thing,
0: that brings up to a real interesting part too. Because like with every operation, and you call it project, uh, it's, to me it sounds like. By the way, you're a professor. We're going to talk about in a minute. It's like you're giving a class. You know, it's the p- class project. But oh, sorry. As with <laughs> it, no, 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 no. This is fun. You know, we're just busting your chops. See, that's the third time you said sorry now. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> we are so. I am so good at this. Can I hold for? Um, can
1: I hold for an edit? edit? And edit? No. Okay. No. No.
0: No. 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 It's all in there. I know. But as with every good thing, every good thing has to come to an end for a variety of reasons. One, the the operation runs its course. Number two, like you know, the the, the threat of being discovered, you know, increases. Uh, you know, things unrelated to, you know, unintended consequences start happening. Right. So, at some point, this ha- this operation has to come to an end. I mean, it's been going on like right close to four years. Right. So. How does this operation wind down? What happens out of it? What's the size and scope of, you know, of the eventual takedown?
1: Well, this is where things were really starting to escalate because Dom Violi is now the underboss and you have the, the mobster turned agent. He's this really powerful guy. And when I talked about in Hamilton, Ontario, how they have three different mob families, the Musitano brothers were one of those Italian mob families in Hamilton that butted heads with the Violis. And one of the brothers, Angelo Musitano, during the project was actually killed. He was shot to death in his driveway, just outside of Hamilton. And again, there was no. Well,
0: ha- did that send shockwaves? I mean, like, I mean, were you concerned that your mobster turned agent was going to get targeted? Anybody
1: could be targeted at at really at any minute. Uh, so, was there elevated concern? hundred percent. But it it definitely appeared to be outside. But where it started to become troublesome is the project was taken down in November 2017. Dom Violi got bumped, promoted to underboss about a month before that. And not only were they talking about doing work, and they never referred to Todaro by name, they would gesture with a cigar to their mouth to signify. It always reminds me of like Vincent the Chin Gigante in in New York, they would they would never say his name because it was pun- apparently punishable by death. So they would point to the chin if they were talking about the boss. It was so like so like this, so like mob, right? So they would never say the boss's name in Buffalo. They would do the cigar. But the surviving brother Pat Musitano, who's now the boss of that other family in Hamilton, they're on the wires talking about Angelo's murder, and the mobster turned agent basically says. Because Pat was the more powerful. The guy who survived hadn't been killed yet. He's, and so the, the monster turn agent says to the Violis, I thought uh, Pat would have been whacked first. And Dom says something to the effect right on the wires, uh, don't worry, he'll be gone by Christmas. And that's where Ooh. things had to, you know, you add that on with, you know, the talk of going down to establish their credibility by doing some work mm-hmm. in the USA. It was, they had a, Could it have gone on? It could have gone on, but it's just like, you know,
0: that, that high wire
1: act that he was going to fall.
0: Too much risk. Too I mean, at this point, you're getting too much risk introduced where you got to make an operational decision. Look, you never get everybody in any operation you're after. You never get everybody, right? You have to just make a decision, but have we gotten enough to where we take this thing down? Will it have a major impact? And You know, what if we do this? What if we do this? And like I had somebody tell me one time, well, what if worms had machine guns? Birds wouldn't fuck with them, now would they? (laughs) So... At some point, you just gotta make Steve, Steve, you're Murph, you're shaking your head. I got, I am loaded with these fantastic phrases. Oh,
2: we gotta get you life outside this podcast.
0: I know, man, this is so much fun. So,
2: Stephen, but it.
0: yeah, but like your point, it's all this risk coming down. So, fun. Do you know? Do you know how that operate? You know how that decisions made? Is it made at uh, you know which level is that made at? Does it have to come from the superintendent? Is it made at the uh, project level? You know how how are how were decisions like that made to say time to pull the plug? that's a decision that's ultimately made at the highest levels. And
1: because this was an RCMP led, but in tandem with the FBI it would have been uh, a cross border and with, with the highest uh, upper echelon of both of those agencies, you know, with obviously input from that major case management triangle of, you know, the case managers and the agent handling team. Um, it's, it just hits that point where you, you can't deflect this, this is police agent anymore, because like you said, Morgan, the, the risk now outweighs the reward and you know what a project to run four years where this mobster turned agent is, is getting paid in the millions, the amount of money to run, you know, these like wires
0: in a wire room, diminishing returns. I mean, yeah. you just, you're, you're the money you're spending. You're not getting the return, you know, that you're going to need on it. That that's a hundred percent. Well, that was I wanted you to continue on, so tell us how this ends. Or do we just end here and make everybody make up their own ending? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> the screen's gonna go black, right? <laughs> Fade to black. No, you're not gonna pull a soprano on me and play the freaking music, you oh, know, no. and then nobody knows if they get whacked or not. So
1: <laughs> Well the the interesting thing was when, when the project was taken down, uh, obviously the Violi brothers are arrested. And when uh, the major drug they were they were dealing in any you know you have fentanyl which is high not only addictive but such a lethal drug yeah cocaine meth they were dealing in uh, like millions of dollars worth of illegal cigarettes but they were also dealing in carfentanil more more so the one crew with joey violi carfentanil like fentanyl is bad enough fentanyl is a hundred times more lethal than fentanyl So, when the the arrests and takedowns occurred, and, you know, America has RICO, the RICO statute, we have legislation called the Criminal Organization Statute. The brothers, unfortunately, they just pled guilty to the drug charges, and the crim org charges didn't stick. A lot of arrests were made in New York simultaneously, and obviously in other mobsters in Toronto, but... The one ironic part is when I come back to this art imitating life and life imitating art, uh, Dom had a lot of incriminating evidence in his office. Uh, cell phones, ledger books, drugs, bundles of cash, bullets. But he had a sign, speaking of fade to black, he had a signed picture of the main characters from The Sopranos in his desk drawer. And the other interesting thing he happened was You know, the Rizzuto crime family was the family that murdered his father and his two brothers to come full circle. And the Rizzuto family were responsible for that. And the Musitanos, the other family in Hamilton, were backed by the family that took out the Violi's dad and two uncles. And the case disclosure from anything to do with the Rizzutos was, uh, there was a project called Colise in Montreal that was against the Rizzutos. Dom had all that in his office and he had newspaper clippings. It's almost like a serial killer tracks, you know, their own infamy and their crimes and their, their, their trophies. It was no different with Dom. These mobsters not only follow their own press, they're doing their, he even had an RCMP tracker that he had discovered on his car. I wasn't sure if it was during the project or just before the buildup phase. Uh, but he had allegedly, supposedly brought his car and they do this all the time. The mobsters up here, probably in the States too. He had a buddy, they put it on a hoist. Yeah. And, hey, there's a tracker. And he had that in his desk drawer too. But I just thought the whole, here's a picture of Tony Soprano, the fictional character with these other guys. And they they personally signed them, the actors, and it's in his drawer. It's just this blurred sort of line of distinction of of mob in, in the 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 media and then mob in real life. You know, well, you know, we, you
2: know th- think about that taking that tracker off of the car and then putting it in your office. It's
0: still active. That's really a stupid move on his part.
2: <laughs> most guys take it throw it in
0: the water. <laughs> I think it's one of those beer stories, but I heard a story, and I think if it was, it's the most brilliant piece of tradecraft I've seen. They actually found the guy, Steve. It's kind of like uh, Murph with you know DEA. You know, pilots are usually the ones to rat out a lot of these guys. If you can get the pilots, you know, you get everything. They knew that these. Group of folks were always getting their, you know, they had technical countermeasures. People come in and scan for bugs and stuff, and they would take their car down there. So they compromised the guy who did the car checks, and he did what he was supposed to do, which is he found the bu- or he found the tracker that they planted. But they wanted him to find that because they wanted him to have trust that the car had been cleaned. So he stuck his own tracker on there after taking the other <laughs> one off, and now this guy's <laughs> driving to all the places. That's great. <laughs> I just love this shit, man. This is so much That's fun. Great. If if only people didn't die and it was just getting knees whacked and stuff, you know, you could have a lot of fun. But I mean, the serious part is, you know, during your time during your time there in uh, uh, Halden, right? Did I say that right? Halden? Halton? Yeah, Halton. I'm sorry, Halton. It's now Halden. Uh, now that it's gone out to millions of people, we have to change the name, <laughs> Halton. But you know, but how many how many organized crime hits, uh, you know, just in your area happened between the time you got on the job until you left the job? You think?
1: Uh, easily, well over thirty. Jeez. Wow. And that's that's just the Italian mob. There's been, you know, Hell's Angels members. You got the Irish and the Asian and mobs and Hell's Angels like you say a bunch of other stuff. Wow. A, a lot of a lot of hits and that's just Southern Ontario. Like that's not even the whole province. Uh, British Columbia is historically been linked directly to Mexico. So you get all these other gangs out in British like the murders that are happening out there right now because of the the ripple effect of El Chapo going away. And you have all these Mexican cartels vying for control of the cocaine and the, and the drug market. And that has a ripple effect in Canada. And there's guys getting clipped left and right on the streets of Vancouver and, and, and whatnot. But it's, you know, it, it's it's been crazy. And it's this sort of tit for tat too. If it's it's typically it's been over in Southern Ontario, a lot of the murders are rooted in gambling and gambling debts. Because the territories, the rockets, the these other groups, they want a piece of it. They want a piece of the pie, and you know, groups are saying, "No, you're not getting a piece of it." So that's when you see the fire bombings and things that these we call like the precursors to violence, and these mobsters are are, are getting
0: you know clipped left and right. And well, shit, I'm supposed to go to Toronto sometime in the near future. I'm not going to disclose the dates because it sounds like a dangerous fucking place. Well, he's man. talking about Vancouver. You <laughs> have, to you're have okay. armed security. You're okay. Yeah, can you still carry a weapon, Stephen? Uh, I can't.
1: I would need to actually apply for, just like a regular citizen, like a firearms license.
0: All and... right. Well, you got you got some time. I'm gonna need a bodyguard <laughs> when I'm in Toronto. Get your ass get get down to the range. Get your ass in gear. Let's go. All right. So, but but the thing that you mentioned though, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. One is the bump, because um, we hadn't talked about that yet. But the other thing is, this is so replete with a great story, but it just didn't make the news because they pled out, right? I mean, it's like there was no trial. There was no showcase. The mobster turned agent really kind of, in a sense, got lucky because everybody pled. He didn't really care what they pled to. I mean, he kind of did, but it's kind of like, no, I got my money. I don't care. I'm out of here. And the fact, the less news you make about it, the better they it is got for me. Revenge.
1: Yeah. And that's that's the one sad part of the, of this file is it didn't because you know, there were so many, you know, everybody checked their ego at the door when they won this project. And I was a supervisor. I was just want to get in the ditches and work this case with everybody. And because they pled guilty and there was no crim org charges on the table, had it have gone to a trial, you know, the, it would have been a huge spectacle. Because the police agent, under his real identity as the mobster, would have had to get on the stand and, you know, had to protect for your project. All those wires and wiretap Interceptions. I mean, it could have been a long drawn out trial, but because they did plead and wanted to avoid that and the publicity, it just, you know, it, it came and went uh, a lot quicker than anticipated. Yeah, he would have been on the stand for weeks and weeks. Oh, Four
2: he's years holy
0: cow. One, well, can you imagine all of what we call down here discovery, but you have to disclose everything to the defense, the number of hours, I mean just the what it would have taken just to review all of the tapes, you know, and the reports. And just the frickin' investigative files that you would have to turn over as part of the prosecution, they probably would have filled a van or a moving truck.
1: Thank, you know, thank goodness for electronic files because, you know, in the day of, like, when I got on the job, it was all paper. Like, you'd have uh, banker's boxes probably just stacked to the ceiling and everywhere. It's just, you know.
2: Yeah, I went, uh, when when Manuel Noriega was on trial in Miami— um i had brought a a columbia police captain up to Miami. we were debriefing some people and we found out you know what courtroom he's going to be in we talked to the marshals and got permission to come in before they brought noriega in before the jury or the judge came in so we were allowed to walk through the courtroom then and just you know just take a look at him but what impressed me more than he's very unimpressive he's just that pineapple face he's a shrimp that pineapple
0: face Nickname he had is justified. He's unfortunate looking, as they say, very unfortunate looking. But
2: what was impressive was the boxes of evidence and documents that the government had around the prosecutor's table. So you had your prosecutor at the table. You had the case agent, which was a DEA guy. And then you had his partner who sat back in a chair in the middle of all these boxes. And his job was to retrieve the document that the prosecutor wanted to look. And it looked like there were 100 boxes around him with all these documents.
0: Holy cow. Kind of like kids playing fort back in the day. I've just built my yeah, exactly. fort, you know, and we're going to... But you know what? That's got to have a psychological effect on the jury, too, because when you look at the number of boxes, you go, well, this guy's got to be guilty. Yeah. Look at all the boxes of evidence they <laughs> yeah. have.
2: Jesus. Yeah, but, well, you know what? Maybe it was all just copy paper. I don't know. <laughs>
0: That's it's what is perceived as real, right? So Steven, let's talk about the bump real quick, because you mentioned that, right? What is the bump? And you said this is very rarely used. And why was it considered in this case? It was considered in this case, because I came on the project
1: and and sort of patched over, carted over the informants I had. And very quickly, they tasked me with just being solely a a source developer. And we came up with this, I, I learned this through training, we had never... Tried to implement it, but because they'd been trained, on it, I said, "Let's let's give this a shot." Uh, we had a, a number of informants aside from the mobster agent, and we put uh, we came up with an operational plan. and said, "Let's let's put surveillance on this potential uh, target. You try to look for who might be sort of the weakness, uh, not necessarily physically, but who do you think this might work on? Because a lot of times it's not going to work. And what it involves is." Getting and developing a lifestyle. So we had the surveillance on this person uh, for about three or four weeks to develop. Where are they going? What are their habits? What are some of the locations that they go to? And these, a lot of these guys are so ritualistic. Habits of uh, what do they call it? Creature a habit. Creatures a, a habit, habit. Yeah. Creatures a habit. So once we established a location, I said to the RCMP, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna create this UC play this bump using a male and female undercover. They're gonna dress the part. We'll have surveillance on this target at this location. And what happened that day leading up to it was in the operational plan, I said, could I get $500 to to build into this? Because what it involves is coming up with an eight second pitch. And now that you know where your target's gonna be, you have surveillance on the target. And when they're in a certain location as occurred on this specific day, we had our, our male and female UC approach the individual in the parking lot uh, dressed similarly for where they were located. And the pitch was, we get, speaking of Tim Hortons, we had an empty Tim Hortons cup. Uh, my co-handler on this particular bump, her phone number was on the bottom. Cause we, the day before in our undercover IDs had rented a, a hotel room in Mississauga posing as a couple. So we had a location to go to if the bump worked. So the cell number's on the bottom. There's 500 cash in the Tim Horton Cup. And I remember saying to the RCMP, if this works, this is good. If it doesn't, that 500 has wings and you're never going to see it again. Because most times they'll just go, oh, fuck you. I'm, I'm just going to pocket the money. I'm not calling you. But that eight second pitch is really pivotal. It's like you know pitching anything. And it was basically one of them said, we're so-and-so with the police. The money in there is for you. There's a number. We, we It's urgent. We need to talk to you right away. So I was way off with one of the surveillance members, and I still remember uh, five minutes later, my co-handler called me from the hotel room outside of Toronto and said, he just called. He wants to meet. Wow. So it was like ugh, that, the adrenaline just kicked in high gear because one of the top warrant writers at the time you know, imagine like this being this mobster police agent, you're working with the feds in Canada, you're working with the FBI, the feds in America, and that you're supposed to play both sides like that. I can only imagine that he was starting to get stressed out. So the, the main warrant writer was like, you know, one of your informants, Steve, might might become the backup agent. So we did this bump to get another guy on board. So I go racing out there to the hotel room and we have surveillance, uh, on this potential target because we want to make sure again, that he's not going to be surveilled or, or spun followed by another police agency or worse, uh, the, the criminal element. Um, he didn't become the agent, but it was, it just worked out. It was one of those, like, you know, how many times it's like, you don't score if you don't shoot and most times it's, you hit the goalpost or you miss this is one of those times it just felt really good as a team. We put this, you know, like little technique and operation together. And, you know, the the person ended up being an informant, but we gave them the whole pitch in the hotel room about potentially becoming an agent and they were on board. So we, we, we call that technique, the bump, you know, get the hook into somebody. And if things had gone South, that person would have, Potentially and hypothetically, been a candidate to sort of move in because their connectedness was pretty evident as well with that element of uh, traditional organized crime. So
0: there's a lot of disgruntled people in that organization, or were. (laughs) Yeah. $500 in a Tim Horton cup, and you still can't get a fucking chair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I am. <laughs> you, you are the poster child for I knew, you know, Stephen needs a chair. We're going to start a charity foundation. Steven needs a chair. They should have given you a chair as a retirement gift.
1: <laughs> My chiropractor though was very thankful because uh <laughs> the money that didn't go to the chair went went to him.
0: Oh yeah, you could take your per diem money and spend it on a chiropractor, yeah. but just not it's a perfect. chair. It was perfect. That's fun. But it, this is just this is going to be so
1: Canadian, and I know I'm feeding into the stigma. I don't come. Go off. for
0: the trifecta.
1: Go ahead. I am going to do it. I still have it sitting with me right here. But the name of the project was tremens and early on when I came on the project, I was given this bottle. There's an actual
0: delirium tremens delirium tremens I recognize. and from i've belgium. been to that bar in belgium i've belgium. been to that bar in
1: brussels and i know from following you guys that you like your belgian beer and i thought this is that so ironic
0: me. yeah murph does ginger ale unless you, <laughs> unless if, you, if or... you can
1: get belgian krig beer i might have one of those cherry beer
0: and it's but it, the
1: ironic part is delirium tremens is also a serious medical affliction it's
0: like if you are having if you're excited, addicted, del- yeah, it's delir- They call it the DTs. You do the drug d- the withdrawals. It's called the delirium tremens. Yes, the DT. So that's you have it have- for this beer. You'll have you'll have the shakes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this beer is six years old. I'm not opening it now. Uh, oh, it- this, it's just aging. It's in the bottle like that for a reason. It. I have I have West Vlierteren yeah. Belgian beer that was bottled in 2014, and it is still prime condition. Get out. I did yep. not know that. You'll have to attend one of the uh, beer taste virtual beer tastings that I do uh, with BelgianStyleAles dot com. That is a free commercial for BelgianStyleAles <laughs> So they actually have a guy who's a called a certified cicerone. He's a, a it's equivalent of a sommelier, you know, for yeah. wine. You learn a lot of stuff about beer but anyway we kind of digress so you did the bump we know the bastards cheap bastards won't buy you a chair so but as with all good things i mean the operation comes to well, an wait, what end. was the what um, was the sentence on these guys how much time did they get
1: oh yeah yeah joey got for the drug offenses he got 16 years mm-hmm. and dom got eight years and here's here's the irony the crim org was taken right off the table uh sentence is still pretty low the, you know, Joey's was much bigger because he was more involved with the fentanyl and carfentanil. And that was definitely an aggravating and mitigating thing at sentencing. Because like I said, just to give your listeners an idea, like if you crushed up a Tic Tac and that was fentanyl, you know, there's enough just in that to probably kill five to eight people. And to think of carfentanil is a hundred times more fatal. I and mean, we talk about this opioid crisis and these guys were on, on the wiretaps. They know this shit is path- like so lethal. They know this,
0: these drugs, they don't, they
1: don't care. They don't, they didn't give a shit. I don't care. So it's really troubling. You know, um, they didn't care if, if a 16 year old, it happened to be sprinkled in even marijuana that that's happened. And it's an overdose. They die. Um, but the ironic part is that sentencing for Dom, um, the courtroom, which was filled with all his supporters, gave him a standing ovation. You know, it was like he was a rock star.
0: Why? Because he pled guilty to.
1: It's what all, all his supporters. They, you know, he's he's like a Pablo a Escobar of, in Canada. It's it's very. It you know what, Murph? It's very similar to sort of that mentality that he's a pil- he's a pillar of the community. He's a
0: man of respect. He's a, you know, a he
1: murderer donates to is the poor
0: he and the orphanage. And yeah, f- sends money to Catholic charities. Yeah, all, blood money, you know, is what it ends up being. Unbelievable. In. It, yeah. You
2: know, it, it, that's one that's a pet peeve for me because we get a lot of, you know, through social media, we get a lot of contact with people, and, and the vast majority of it is very supportive, but you still got the
0: jackasses out there that are, you know. Well, but, but Murph, you, so I don't know if you know this, Stephen. Murph's been on with one of the top comedians in the world, Tom Segura. Tom had him on his podcast and you changed Tom Segura's thinking, Oh, Pablo's this, you know, night and shine, you know, Robin hood, right? You, you set him straight by the end of the podcast. If I re- recall you're right. correctly, he said,
2: do you change my mind? And, and wow. I'll be honest
0: with you. I did that interview with Tom. I didn't know
2: he was as big as he is, <laughs> you know, cause it was, uh, you're never supposed to read your comments, you know, the stuff that people put out, but you do some of them anyway. And uh, some of his listeners were, Shocked that he changed his mind on that. some were saying, "Oh, he caved into that ex DEA guy and all that kind of stuff." But you know, maybe the guy was honest.
1: I had no problem with him. He was a lot of fun to talk to. But Murphy, you bring up a really good point. Is a lot of people who aren't they don't work this type of job, law enforcement, mm-hmm. and get involved like Murph working? You know, you working Escobar. That's the that's the biggest case in the history of law enforcement, in my opinion. And it's like people see it from the media's portrayal. And, the, you know, the glamour side of it. And, you know, I remember talking to Murph about, you know, like he's this narco terrorist who he blew up people in planes. He killed police officers, he killed judges. He'd kill. I remember you even saying, like, he's not just going to kill your your family. He's going to kill the dog, too. Like the like it. So these guys are worse than. The, the Ted Bundy's that we've come to, and I'm not downgrading what, you know, these serial killers are, but these guys have killed more people right. than the top hundred serial killers in the world, if not a thousand. Yeah,
0: it's, it's, there's nothing good about them whatever, whatsoever. Well, they romanticize no. people like Bundy. We had Dave Reichert from the Green River Killer on uh, one of our episodes, and it, you would not believe, it's just like this fascination people have with John Wayne Gacy, you know, with Richard Ramirez, you know. It's just like, what the fuck are you people eating, you know, and what are you on to think that these guys are – Scott Peterson and Lacey Peterson, you know, the case down here at the U.S. where he killed his wife, an unborn child. This guy gets marriage proposals. It's like you – Well, what? well, that's one of
2: the things that, that we used to talk about. We haven't in a long time, but in, in Pablo's prison, you know, his, in his custom-built country clothes, what it was – there were two shelves on there. One, there were there were just folder after folder after these box folders, and you know, like expandable folders. And they one shelf contained any article about Pablo from around the world because he wanted to know what everybody thought of him. The second shelf was full of letters from people around the world, and I just remember Javier reading one to me. And this lady, I forget what country she's from. It was in Spanish. She's she's like, "Oh, I admire you so much. You stand up for your ideals and and your beliefs. You're even willing to take on your own government, you know, and try to do what's right and fight extradition to that United, that ugly United States. And by the way, I have a 13-year-old daughter that I'd like to give you so you could have a love child with her." I mean, just oh. people are so freaking sick. It's just it makes uh, me sick. And you know, a lot of the the people that that say the good things about Pablo now I don't know how old they are, but I'm, I'll be willing to bet most of them weren't even born yet when he was
0: killed. It's this romantic, this fictionalized romanticization. romanticization. Well, however yeah. you say it, the romanticized romanticization. <laughs> yes, I can't. It's like yesterday when I was trying to say what we're trying to say. I couldn't you really yeah. good or something. I couldn't even <laughs> so, say. It. I was daydric- I hadn't even started day drinking yeah. yet. <laughs> um, you know, and we did this. Um, but Stephen, but th- this is not the end of the story for you, right? Because you retire in 2016, um, and you go on to—by the way, guys, this is like a master class here. The professor—you know, class is in session. The professor has been giving you That's an right. in-depth story of organized crime in Canada, of all places, the one of the nicest places on earth— And true, you guys are killing people up there. But (laughs) hey, but let's talk, because I do want to talk about this real quick because you wrote a book based on a lot of this too. And folks can find it. They can go to under, under... uh, the, uh, underworldstories.com. Underworldstories.com. It's got the link for both the Canadian uh, link for Amazon and the uh, link for the U.S. site. And we obviously are very popular. We're going to drive huge, huge amount of book sales. You're probably going to get three. Oh, thanks. Three somebody. out of yeah. this. Three out of this. <laughs> as least. many as we get for Manhunters. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I just no, want. No, really. it's undercover uh, stories from the underworld of law enforcement. A You know, and you talk to a lot of the people we've been talking to. I mean, you've talked to. Uh, um, uh, Dominic Polifrone. I mean, you've talked with Steve, obviously. I don't know why, but you talked with Steve. Lou <laughs> <know? laughs> And I mean, and Lou, Lou Yeah, I mean, guys that we've yeah. had. These these stories are so amazing. So, how did you go from being uh, an Intel, being an operator, working organized crime, tats, and you know, shaved head? You still got a shaved head. I do. Yeah. Is that by choice or is that by uh, because you just lack hair? It's uh, it's like you know a chia pet. If it goes sideways, <laughs> no.
1: that's what my hair would look like. So I just shaved it. shave it off? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible project
0: gone wrong. <laughs> Okay, you know it's like Murph's hair too. He goes and gets his one haircut, you know, uh, just a like, singular it. hair, not a single haircut, but I mean a one, just literally hey, hair one. Cut, hey, I hair. Have, I cut. still have
2: about twenty-eight up there. I have them numbered now. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and me, my God, I got so much falling out, I can't keep track of it. So, and it, it, I mean, in. That's I mean, it's right. a beautiful head of hair. But right, we so. gotta go now. I'm gonna <laughs> <we'll> disconnect you. <laughs> well, you can. I'm still in charge. Remember, I've, I've got the controls over here. So, Steven, so how do you go from being this 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 badass? always working out, ready to go, you know, cop, you know, and seconded to the RCMP to becoming a professor. All I can think of you is with your little book and a cup of tea going, okay, students. Well, look Hi. at him. I mean, you can
2: see, you get, our listeners can't see him, but look at his traps, man. He's got some, yeah. it goes from the edge of his you shoulder said, to the bottom of his ear there. There's yeah. no neck Where's your, where's your neck? <laughs> Do you have a neck? Where's it at? He's got his muscle shirt on there. he got some uh, tattoos, but you look like a tough guy. You look like a Hell's Angel guy.
0: Yeah.
1: No, no. I just, I have former beer store employee. <laughs> you spent some time in the gym there, brother. let t- 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 in those pallets of beer, LaBats. <laughs> la right.
0: Yes. Oh, it's a good workout. Believe me. So talk about how you go. It's Mohawk College, right?
1: I'm at Mohawk College. And I taught uh, part-time early on in my police career on the side at a Sheridan College, which is an area where I actually worked in uniform. And I, I knew I didn't want to spend 30, 35 years in policing, that was part of the reason why I sort of continued my education. I really, second to policing, was was teaching. I knew one day I wanted to get back in the classroom, and at my age now, in my in my fifties, um, nothing makes me happier than getting students excited about the topics of criminology, policing, you know, legal issues. Um, so in a way I've, I've made that into a uh, post-retirement career, but I honestly, I would almost do it for free because it's just seeing the, the next generation of, of youth, um, get really excited about the topics that I grew up being excited about, um, and a- answering their questions and sort of being an informal mentor, uh, that, that means the world to me. And you know what? I, I did everything I wanted to do in policing, leaving on that note of that project, in my opinion humble opinion there was nothing else that could parallel the excitement or the adrenaline for me that's a pretty so good cuz i knew I, I knew it was time to move on and life's a chap life's a book too right and it's it was ready to start a new chapter and it's been uh, it's 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 been a great ride 5 years so far that's in life's an adventure and you're on the next chapter oh. of that
0: adventure that's cool very cool. Hundred percent. Hundred percent, Murph. Yeah, yep. and Murph went from capturing Pablo to being Derek Maltz's coffee wench. <laughs> I did. I was his butt boy. And proud to be there too. Proud to be there, man. It's, we're, we're gonna have to introduce guy. you to him sometime, Stephen. This is a uh, he has You'd he's become that. such a legend. We actually have to get him on the show at some time, Murph, you know? There's a there's an idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, we'll never get it worded. You you will not get it worded edgewise with there. That's going to be show. something. Yeah, I know. We're just going to have to turn the record button on and come back in three hours and say, just let us know when you're done, Derek. Uh, I'll
2: just go over here on the couch. And, well, I sold the damn couch. You oh, sold the shit. couch, man. You're
0: moving. You're going to be on the hammock. A couple weeks from now, Murph's going to be in skivvies and a pair of shorts and flip flops. I will show you guys my suntan. Yeah. My tan lines. Of course, we won't be able to record at this time of day anymore because he's going to have to hit the blue plate special down at the diner <laughs> at Absolutely. four o'clock. You got to beat those gray hairs in there, you know. You got to beat them in there. Hey, but Stephen, <laughs> what's what's the what's the best part about teaching? Uh, you, I know you said that, but I mean, what's the best part about that? Have you had students go take you know go on into police services or policing? Have you seen you know them move on into areas? What have you seen so far? What's been some of the fun stuff?
1: Yeah, You know, I've, I've seen students that have become, uh, I have to give credit to one of my colleagues because we developed a course together at Mohawk called Criminal Psychology, and it ranges from everything from organized crime to multicide to serial offenders, psychopathy, and um, it really feels good for me to know that students, not all of them, but they're interested in the, in the course that we developed but some of them have had a total change of, you know, career directions. Um, they've come up to Kimberly and I and and have said and meet directly that you know they want to get into criminology or, uh, you know, law enforcement or get into a program at a college or university that deals with that that subject. So you know what, you can't put a price tag on on that that sort of feedback directly from a student. Uh, I really put a lot of weight you know, we have a, a my bosses, there are our deans and associate deans, but I always say my bosses are you, the students, because it's their feedback that is, is, is the, like I said, that you can't put a price tag. It on keeps it. you and motivated, doesn't it? It keeps me motivated. And it's, you know, I, I don't know what it was. when I, when I, t- you know, turned 50, it was like more about how can I take what I've learned? And, you know, I've, we all have kids and it's about giving back to your kids too, but on, on a, at the school level, it's, it's really about mentoring these young kids. And a lot of them would, like, I've been teaching actually from home for a year and a half. I was telling Morgan.
0: Yeah, he and hasn't been allowed I, out of his basement. I don't know when he showered. I don't know what he does for number one and number two. I don't want to know. That's but why he's got that he thing hasn't on been his let out of his basement. And speaking to Chia, Pet, yeah, he's got to mow his head because the Chia pet hair has just really gone wild. We shower with beer, actually. Hey, there really you go. I thought you were going to say you shower with moose, but uh, what is the plural for moose? Mooses, moose eye, moose? Ooh, can I phone a friend? I, I don't even
1: know.
2: You're what Canadian that is. and you don't know what can the I plural for moose is.
1: Oh. All right. Hey, but, uh, all right, get back. You teach at other places as well besides Mohawk College, right? I teach at Queen's University, which is in Kingston, Ontario, which is about halfway. From Toronto drawn out of montreal i know all your listeners are like holy the geography is all over the place but i, I teach organized crime at at uh, kingston university as well which i mean that's just i love mohawk that's my base but to to teach an actual course and be part of uh organized crime program um man i'll tell you it's like i my wife always says, don't get Steve going on organized crime. He could talk for weeks, man. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. and now I'm, I'm doing it as,
0: as a living. And I'm like, I'm pinching myself. Like this is. Have you ever had a student in your course by the first name of Don? <laughs> How do you look at him? It? It's Don Corleone. I come to you. I have this question for you.
1: <laughs> Here we go.
0: And there's another
1: university you speak at too, right? There is actually. Yeah. The University of Guelph-Humber. Uh, I just actually started uh, just teaching a course there, this term in forensics, and it's really cool. I was never a homicide detective, but we have what's called a MERT team. It's almost like the RCMP bringing in outside people It MERT is a major incident response team. And one of my things outside of uh, informants and organized crime was I loved interviewing people. Um, it doesn't matter if they, you know, shoplifted something. Like I said, everyone has a story to tell. And I I really loved being a part of that. So this forensics course is a lot about uh, their second-year students. A lot of them are either going into law school or in policing. Uh, So we talk about, like, one thing that wasn't around when we were all in policing is this genetic
0: genealogy, how they're even solving cold cases now. Yeah, I just... I'm signing up for a course. I'm a member of the International Homicide Investigators Association. That email just came out today. They've they've got a four part series being taught on the use of familial DNA. Oh, cool. that's very cool.
2: Yeah, an interview and interviewing, there, there's that's a true art. I mean, if you're going to be successful and glean all that information, and you've got to win the 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 person over, believe it or not. I mean, you know more about it than I do, but
1: uh, it's been a long time since I did that. But it's it tr- is truly an art. It really is, and I it's just it's there's something about the process because a lot of times the person sitting across from you hates your guts and you have to just like undercover work. It's, it's a lot of acting. It's a lot of rapport building. You have to build up their confidence and trust. And just quick side note, when I was in professional standards, we would field complaints from people about the police and I would bring them in to interview them to see, okay, is this legitimate? Is it a frivolous complaint? And when they would find out I was from a sergeant from the same agency that they're complaining about, they would, half the time, they would go completely off the rails on me. And it would sometimes take me two hours, like a, like to reel them back in. And it's like building that bridge back up uh, with that, not only communication, but then trust and rapport. And I'd have, you know, it was like, you literally would have to start from ground zero to get them back on the same page, to and convince them. You're, I'm gonna tell you what, just, brother, just
2: to get them back. You're, you're a
0: lot, you've got a lot more patience than after I do. After 15 minutes, bro, I'd go unfounded, get hit the door, <laughs> John. No. Hey, but you know you're in trouble when uh, you're, you're sitting there talking to them and you know Steve Murph pulls out a ginger ale and says, "Hey, I'm not a snitch. You know, I'm, I'm here to help." <laughs> from the government. I'm here to help.
2: You know, you know, what was one of the best uh, icebreakers when you're interviewing people in jail and lock up was uh, a Big Mac and fries.
0: <laughs> Smuggle that into them. You know, oh, we, yeah. said, we said that early on in our podcast, Stephen. people thought we were joking. But look, the best way to show no. that the the interview, that the confession was voluntary, it was not coerced, that they were cooperative. You, We used to take Polaroids of them with a the Big Mac and fries and them smiling going, I love these fries. And uh-huh. it's like, Hey man, I'm not making this up. When I when I started,
1: and I was the rookie on the shift in the '90s for two years, when when you ever you started on the day shift, especially on the weekend, you know the staff sergeant would say, "I know
0: what you're about to say. You were the designated you know, boy to go." I get was them. the guy, and I, I did it.
1: I never complained. But you know what the prisoner meals were? We would get McDonald's vouchers, yeah, and. We would go. I'd, I'd go in the drive-through and, and I'd say eight prisoner meals, please. Uh, I wasn't going to be eating no, this, What do so they work. hide a
0: file inside the? Is that the, your Happy Meal prize? You know, it comes with a handcuff key. What? Can I supersize that shit? Like, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we have large. Yeah, supersize. Yeah, can we, dude? You eat eight of those meals, you're going to be supersized. Oh yeah, you to – you're gonna be
2: spending some time in one particular room in your house too,
1: <laughs> but it, it, I used to use that to my advantage because, like Murph said, like small little things, like a Big Mac and fry. I would, I would, like, hey guys, you're in luck today. I got you McDonald's. Yes. Like it wasn't my money,
0: but you don't have to necessarily tell me that. And they were like, hey, you know, I would, I would have told know. you where Jimmy Hoffa was buried if I just gotten Tim Hortons, but this McDonald's <laughs> shit, fuck <laughs> that. Yeah, for that you only get the Gambinos. That's all you're getting from me. <laughs> uh, this is great this oh my god oh, look we <laughs> could go on doing this and we're all going to be in trouble so but i'll have to tell you folks you've got to go on uh, and we'll post this also on our web page but look it's it's very easy just go to the website underworldstories.com order the book get the book um you know it's just it's excellent stuff great it stories is. and if you think this is great even more great stories and some of the guests including murph including Lou, including Dominic, we've actually had on here. So listen to those stories, listen to the podcast, you know, and this is just, I mean, I got to tell you though, Stephen, you've given a masterclass in Mm -hmm. organized crime, just your recall, your details. Hell, I would have got, I got, I got confused after ravioli because, you know, violi, I'm sorry. not ravioli, I'm like, that's what I would have thought, ravioli. You are ravioli, you're pasta. You know? uh, we, we probably lost some listeners when you came Rizzuto. out with that comment. Isn't risotto a, an Italian dish or something? R-
1: risotto. Risotto, close enough. <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah. I was, I was, I was searching risotto and stuff and a lot of, a lot of Italian restaurants are named mm. risotto, you know? Don't order a risotto
1: because the waiter might. Hit you in the kneecap yeah. yeah, your ten percent
0: <laughs> tip. Whack. <laughs> yep. Right. yep. Well, hey. Thanks so much. Got to tell you, this was fun. And again, we ran our own psychological off on you. Not only did we get you apologize, we got you to say a several times. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadian hey, version of
2: Fonzie. We're gonna leave you with a. Uh, Steven, you see, you see, as as men, we never grow up, do we? We're boys until the day we die. Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Farts will be funny until I'm a hundred. Well, Murph we was part old. of the
0: fast action response team at DEA. No, I wasn't. Fart, get it. Fast action response. <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna bring Joe bring in, uh, in here talk to you. I need food. I
1: need alcohol. I need something. <laughs> this, this has been. Fun. I really. It was a a real pleasure and honor. I, i'm Thank, thank you so much for having me on. It's
0: thus saluting you. Thank you for your great service for the citizens of Canada and even for us citizens of the United States taking out these bad guys. Absolutely. We appreciate it.
1: Yep. And it's been an honor having you on here, Stephen. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. The brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, there's no borders uh, on the job and even tonight. So thank you so
0: much. Guys. As Absolutely. proof by we busted your chops with no regard for where you were located in the world. <laughs> it didn't matter. you. <laughs> What did I tell you? I'm the master of psychological operations. I got him to say <laughs> A. I got him to apologize three times, and we talked about beer. So, I mean, you hit for the trifecta. Yeah, but you
2: know what? When you meet him in person, he's going to bop you around the top of the head, and he's going to shove your head down your throat. Well, there. as
0: hard as it is to get into Canada, I've got to go, speaking of that, as we're recording this a couple hours later, I have to go get my nose swabbed so I can go into Canada in a couple days because you have to have a PCR test done. And those are, I don't know, man, those are worse than I think uh, – You know, it it feels like the old ones used to be feel like sticking a knitting needle up into your brain. So hopefully they've gotten better. Yeah, I've heard people describe it as tickling your spine. Yeah, well, don't do the Chinese. The Chinese have a test where basically it's an anal probe, so... Well, and don't do that one for the, the small-town police bot or shoving the whatever it was. <laughs> oh, shoving the queer, <laughs> yes. Uh, talking about money, folks. Okay. Talking about money. Yeah. Anyway, so... Listen to the intro. But, I mean, what fascinating stuff. And one of the pictures, you know, the thing that just surprised me, too, it's a freaking messy hotel room. They're in their best jumpsuits, you know, tracksuits, velvet, you know, tracksuits. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Sopranos. I'm thinking, they're gonna be in thighs. They're gonna yeah. be in a coat, you know, with the carnation. And
2: nope. Talk about stereotypical. And those velvet track suits. <laughs> Holy cow! I haven't seen those forever,
0: man. Well, if you like velvet well, track suits, and if you like watching people being made med- made men in an unmade, you know, hotel room, head on over to Apple, you know, <laughs> or wherever you're at. Just give us five stars, whatever it takes. We love you guys. We love when you help us out. Just hit those five stars. It's magic. Again, we don't know how it works. Uh, head on over to Game of Crimes for more info about the show. We'll be constantly updating it. We'll be adding merch. But you gotta follow us though, uh, you know, on 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 the Instagram and on the Facebook, which will become Meta at some point. Who knows? Who cares? At Game of on Twitter. That we'll put out a lot of information on there as well. And also paypal.com, you know, and use our email, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes. But head on over to Patreon. I'm telling you, we're getting more stuff out. In fact, after we get done here, we're recording another uh, special video for a special level for only those folks and then later on we'll be doing our live stream where we talk about the movie The Departed which is kind of loosely based on Whitey Bulger and uh, Boston and the FBI and Leo DiCaprio and Matt Damon and by the way you want to know something that's really ironic in the opening one of the opening scenes guess who walked in and is one of the captains uh, in the uh, Massachusetts State Police wearing a gun is Alec Baldwin oh yeah (laughs) it's just hard to take him
2: serious Especially after. <laughs> Maybe i watched too much Saturday Night Live or yeah. something with him. Well, and
0: after what happened out at the shooting of the, you know, he, when he, he just, oh, at, yeah. the, at, at that movie set, that's tragic. I mean, but that, you know, if that goes back to, you handle every weapon as though it's loaded. You check it, you check it.
2: Always. I don't care.
0: You hand a weapon to me, I'm checking it. Doesn't matter what it is. You're absolutely, you know what? I was
2: in a shooting one time and my railroad chief came in and, and said, give me your weapon. Back then it was a Model 15 revolver, Smith & Wesson. So you open the cylinder, dump the shells, and he about blew a gasket. How am I going to know how many rounds you fired? I'm like, here, (laughs) there's four empty shell casings in my hand and two live rounds. You know now, it's four.
0: Well, Steve, the problem is he can't count past five unless he's got an extra pair of hands. So that was, was the problem. He was the worst boss I ever had in my life, I think. Hey, but you learn a lot from bad bosses just like you do good bosses. So anyway, that being said... Head on over to patreon.com. You'll see all of this great stuff. you see our NarcoMeter review of The Departed and all of the other stuff we did. We did Training Day. We did Beverly Hills Cop. So we got a lot of good stuff over there. But what we got coming up next week, I mean, this is a story. This is one of the most inspirational stories I've ever heard. You. uh, Let me do the quick setup and you take it from there, Steve. Okay. Imagine folks, you're on a dangerous operation in Afghanistan with the DEA working with special forces, Australian special forces. You're the last guy to get on the helicopter and you get shot through the head by the Taliban.
2: And you live, you survive. So that's who we've got coming up next week. Joe Pirasante, this guy, I've been dying to get him on the show. Uh, I saw Joe speak at the California Narcotics Officers Association pre-COVID. So what's that, two years ago? And uh, this is the largest narc conference in the world. Over two thousand cops there. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. I mean, Joe, you know, he he did a th- I think it was a three hour presentation, and he had to take a couple breaks, you know. And uh, um, every time, <laughs> it's like every time he take a deep breath, he get a standing ovation. It was just so motivational. It's a it's a story of never quit, never giving up, dealing with what life deals you. Wait till you hear what he's doing now. I mean he's doing crap now that I can't do. And on top of all this other exciting stuff, remember what he looks like? He's a professional bodybuilder. He's got muscles that have muscles that have a muscle and then's got another muscle on top of that. I mean, this guy's my massive. muscles got
0: tired looking at his muscles. I mean that's how oh and, my God. which is one reason why when you hear a story, you'll understand why he carried the heavy weapons and yeah. Yeah. That helped save his life and the lives of a lot of other people. And the mission DEA was doing, by the way, folks, just in case you're wondering why DEA is in Afghanistan, you're going to have to listen to the episode next <laughs> week and find out why. <laughs> I thought you were Don't you tell just like, <laughs> Hell no. That's it's a called teasing. a tease. Yeah, there It's called go. a tease. By the way, we got some good feedback on the episode we posted. Uh, we had a lot of people say because we posted a 15-minute clip on uh, – Podcast on the free side to drive them over to Game of Crimes, uh, you know, on Patreon to say if you want to hear more. We had a lot of people like I said sign up and they they like that they like the tease part of it. So I I stopped it right there. said, where are you moving to? <laughs> stopped it right there. And then the answer is, you got to listen to find out. Again, that's there we right. go. All right, that's right. Hey, so but
2: I just want to say thank you guys for listening. To Steve Matelski supporting with his book Undercover. And you got to come and listen to Joe Piresansis. I mean, we've had some fantastic guests on here, and Joe's right there at the top. As the story, uh, and afterwards, and we'll say this afterwards. You know, after
0: his interview, we want to hear your comments about him. I mean, this guy, unfrickin' believable. I'm just so proud of him. How many people would have? Well, and you'll hear how close he came to not continuing on the mission. Right? What they call Charlie might continue the mission. So. Let's save that for next week. So, guys, everybody, thank you guys for supporting us. Thank you guys again for all of your great comments. Thank you for downloading these episodes. And thank you most of all for playing the biggest, the baddest, the most dangerous game of all, The Game of Crimes.